Welcome to the Christian History Podcast, Chapter 6, Episode 6. Last week, I wrapped up the summary of the book of Deuteronomy, covering the last part of Moses' second speech, the entirety of his third speech, and everything that came after, including his death. If you missed that episode, you should really go back and give it a listen. This week, I'm taking a break from Deuteronomy to address two things. They both are something a bit timely, but for different reasons. The first is plague, well, really disease in the Bible. And the second is a recognition of the podcast fourth anniversary, with a little narrative that recaps the past year, well, really the past four. And with that, let's get started. When we think of the word plague, we tend to head towards diseases like bubonic plague or other diseases like smallpox. But in a biblical context, it was a more encompassing term. The clearest place to see this is in the ten plagues that struck Egypt when the Pharaoh refused to let the Israelites leave. But most of these were not diseases, and instead were either invasions of pests, like locusts, frogs, gnats, flies, or some other destructive animal. Other plagues were more natural phenomena, the sky turning dark for three days, the Nile turning to blood, or weather like hail. In fact, of the ten listed in Exodus, only two, or maybe three, could be considered disease-related. Those were boils, the death of the firstborn, and a disease that hit livestock. My point is simple. When a plague is mentioned in a biblical context, it wasn't necessarily a disease. Not to forget, there are several mentions of plague in the book of Revelation. That, though, is outside the context of this podcast. Remember, I cover how the history of the religion intersects with the history of the world. Revelation is about neither. It's about the future. A few episodes ago, I covered leprosy and how what was called the disease in the Old Testament likely wasn't. Though, when the term is found in the New Testament, it could have been what we call leprosy. I'll avoid repeating that disease. If you missed the episode, or simply want a refresher, it can be found in chapter 5, episode 21. Of course, leprosy isn't the only disease mentioned in the Bible. It's just one of the few given a proper name, even if it's sometimes possibly inaccurate. In other places, in some translations, epilepsy, tumors, blindness, deafness, and scurvy are mentioned. Also recall that twice in Numbers, God sent disease to the Israelites for disobedience. The first was in Numbers 16, after they rebelled, when 14,700 were struck dead. The next one was in Numbers 25, after an Israelite man brought a Midianite woman into the camp, and 24,000 died. But in both of these cases, the disease went unidentified, which seems ambiguous. But I need to point out something I've mentioned in the past. We live in a different world with a far different understanding of germ theory, bacteria, viruses, and fungi. Not to forget, our language is much further developed with specific words for different things, even for things that seem superficially similar. They knew of the stars in the sky, 
but we have assigned names to every visible star. We know the difference between a viral and bacterial infection. They didn't. And so many more examples. So, what we tend to get are not the actual diseases that afflicted the people, but more often the symptoms of the diseases. We then attempt, likely sometimes right, sometimes not, to assign these symptoms to a disease we might understand. A great example is Deuteronomy 28, which reads, The Lord will afflict you with consumption, fever, inflammation, with fiery heat and drought, with blight and mildew. They shall pursue you until you perish. At least, that's what's recorded in the New Revised Standard Version. The NIV reads, The Lord will strike you with wasting disease, with fever and inflammation, with scorching heat and drought, with blight and mildew, which will plague you until you perish. In the King James, The Lord shall smite thee with a consumption, and with a fever, and with an inflammation, and with an extreme burning, and with the sword, and with blasting, and with mildew, and they shall pursue thee until thou perish. Taking all those symptoms into account, some say this could have been Ebola, though this disease wasn't identified until 1976, some 3,000 plus years after Deuteronomy was written. Others focus on the word consumption, which we call tuberculosis. Additional places in the Bible list different symptoms of illnesses. Symptoms such as atrophy, gastrointestinal distress, fever, which may have been the same as fiery heat, persistent bleeding, boils and other skin lesions, itching, the list goes on. Then, there are afflictions that were considered diseases that we don't hold in the same ill regard. Things like baldness, dwarfism, speech impediments, obesity, palsy, found in Matthew and assumed to be a general term for paralysis, and many other things. Finally, some symptoms found in the text lie in a gray area between disease and something else. Demon possession, which is thought to overlap historically with mental illness, the related term of insanity, alcoholism, and the potential for parasitic infection. In my mind, we shouldn't forget that in the few thousand years that make up both the Old and New Testaments, life was tough, and people understood far less about what was biologically happening to them. Add on top of that that they had fewer linguistic ways of explaining it, and you get the disease and plague found in the Bible. Which is enough on that topic for today. Rest assured, that as I run across specific things in the text, I will dive in a similar fashion to how leprosy was treated. Now for the four-year anniversary. So, this is the 208th episode, which means the podcast, since it's weekly, and has published every week, is hitting its four-year anniversary. Like I've mentioned so many times before, I won't say that I never expected to get this far, or that I did. Quite frankly, when I started, I didn't know what to expect. It's just as true today as it was four years ago. I'll tell you one thing, though. I never expected that four years in, and I'd still be in the Pentateuch. Though, this time last year, I was only in Exodus, with that episode focusing on Exodus chapters 21 and 22. 
along with sabbatical years. While superficially that may seem like acceleration, it's owing more to two similar factors. First, as the biblical text progresses, many of the people, places, and things have been previously mentioned, and therefore I've already covered them. And second, the history embedded in the text is slowing. As an example, think about the book of Genesis. That first book covers the history of the world, then region, then the Israelites from creation until their arrival in Egypt, literally thousands of years. Exodus covers the 400 or so years the Israelites were in Egypt, and many of the years of wandering, so four to five centuries. Meanwhile, the book of Leviticus is thought to cover a period of between one and two months. And, as the time pace of the book slows, the pace of the podcast increases inversely. Overall, and also like I've mentioned before, I intend for the podcast to be as thorough as necessary so that my listeners can walk away learning not only something they didn't previously know, but can also apply it to their lives both inside and outside of the religion. I'm still hopeful that you found the delivery and content has gotten better as it progresses. I'm certainly more comfortable in all aspects, from the research to the writing to the recording, editing, re-editing, and finally publishing. And in case you've missed it the other times I've mentioned it, this isn't my full-time job. Instead, I managed to work the podcast in and around work and family obligations. The way my week goes, typically, well, really optimally, is reading and writing some on Monday and Tuesday, ramping up Wednesday and Thursday, then the first draft is completed sometime Saturday, rereading and re-editing Saturday and Sunday, along with checking the pronunciation of the ancient names and places. And I'm going to pause here for a second. Very early on, I received some negative feedback regarding pronunciations. And the place that sticks out in my memory is Nineveh. And I'll admit, I did initially mispronounce it. Which led to an additional step in the production process, the creation of a pronunciation guide. This is my most disliked step and can take up to an hour. But, thanks to the wonders of the internet, pronunciations of most of these arcane places and people are readily available. Though, do note that there are, in many cases, several acceptable pronunciations. My warning is that if I pronounce something differently than how you've heard it, it truly may be that I did mispronounce it, but more likely is that there's an alternate. Recently, someone wrote in and took me to task over my pronunciation of bitumen, which is essentially a fancified word for asphalt, the word we would use in a modern conversation. But bitumen is found in three separate instances in Genesis and Exodus. And, as you've noticed, I pronounce it one way, but it also can be pronounced bitumen, the British pronunciation. Neither is wrong. They are just different. Overall, I aim for about 3,500 words, no more than 4,000. As an example, the last episode was 3,701 words. So, a little quick math shows that 208 episodes at 3,500 words is in the neighborhood of 728,000 words. Almost three-quarters of a million. 
for perspective, the King James Authorized Bible has 783,137 words. The NIV has almost 728,000 words. And I'm going to pause here too. One of the things I really enjoy doing in the podcast is attempting to put perspective on an ancient, misunderstood, or generally nebulous concept. More on that in a minute. Unpausing. To think that over the course of four years, I've written just as many, or nearly as many words, as can be found in the text of the Bible is utterly amazing. Please don't misunderstand. I am by no means comparing the depth or quality of my writing to the Bible, just the volume. I usually print the script, then record, then recycle the paper. So, I've never accumulated all of the text of the episodes, but to know that if it were printed, it would be roughly a book the size of the Bible, well, that's staggering. Back to the production process. If everything goes well, I'll record on Sunday afternoon. The first audio edit is Sunday, the second Monday, and the third and final is Tuesday. That's right, three separate audio edits. That's the most tedious and really the least rewarding part of the whole process, except for the dreaded but necessary pronunciation guide. Imagine having to listen to yourself over and over again. Next, I'll write up the one-paragraph summary and the keywords and submit for publication Wednesday evening. And, as astute as all of my highly intelligent listeners are, I'm sure you noticed that my weeks overlap. And they do. I'm pulling double duty writing and audio editing Monday through Wednesday. The necessity of a good audio edit is something that surprised me. In order to get the sound consistent and of sufficient quality, there's about two to three hours of editing that needs to occur for a 25-minute episode. Overall, the process is an intense, non-stop, seven-day-a-week task. A task that requires discipline and planning. My actual job requires a lot of travel. Last year alone, I spent around 130 nights away from home. And I don't like to travel with my bulky microphone, if I can avoid it. So, there are cases, many in fact, where I will work like crazy to get two or three weeks ahead at least in the writing and recording. I can always audio edit and publish from anywhere, as long as I have an internet connection. But that carries a risk. If I totally mess something up in recording and don't catch it in real time, I can be stuck away from my microphone with a publication deadline looming. That's the nightmare. Having said that, it's never happened in a manner that wasn't recoverable. I've never missed a weekly publication owing more to discipline and luck than anything else. Like I've mentioned, I travel about 50% of the time for work, and airplanes make for good riding, as long as it's not terribly bumpy and the laptop is fully charged. I've recorded at my house, in hotel rooms, in the back seat of my SUV, and even while visiting relatives. I've researched and written in more places than I can remember, and spent time in cars, on planes, the subway, and who knows where else, editing the audio. In the four years of the podcast, I've made three trips to Europe, one to Canada, another to Central America, and a countless number of states, cities, and airports, and always published. All with the usual family distractions, work distractions, personal distractions, 
and now the completely unexpected destruction of a worldwide epidemic. And with all of that, rest assured, next week, and every week in the foreseeable future, I will publish. And about putting things in context, this is one of my favorite things. Think of the role the Sea of Galilee has played in the biblical text. Thousands of years, from before the Israelites crossed the Jordan to the walking on water, its role is larger than life. But how large is it? It's a sea after all. Well, there are two ways to measure the size of a body of water. Its surface area and its water volume. This sea has a surface area of about 64 square miles, which is about 166 square kilometers. And its volume is almost a cubic mile, or about 4 cubic kilometers. And those numbers alone, unless by rare chance you are a hydrologist, are really good at visualizing geometry. Well, they're meaningless. So, I add context. If the lake were located in the U.S., in terms of surface area, it would be the 80th largest lake. Smaller than all of the Great Lakes, of course, but also smaller than lesser-known lakes such as Lake Murray in South Carolina and Clear Lake in California. The Sea of Galilee fares better when compared in terms of volume, as it would be the 46th largest lake, which points towards something else. It's deeper than the average large lake in the U.S., and putting it in this context isn't merely trivial. My hope is that it helps to make the sea, well really lake, more comprehensible, more real. I've tried to contextualize other things. The size of the Tower of Babel, Noah's Ark, the Ark of the Covenant, the value of gold and silver, distances between points, attempting and hopefully succeeding, and making the text come alive be more understandable and more meaningful. Now for a few interesting tidbits. As of the last episode, the podcast has been heard in 184 countries with millions of downloads. This time last year, it was at 163 countries on six continents. Two years ago, it was 128 countries. It's been heard in every region of the U.S., except for the area around Wolf Point, Montana. Do me a favor, and if by rare chance you know someone who lives in that area, ask them to listen. Also, it still hasn't been heard on Antarctica or in Greenland, which I know isn't a continent, but it is really large on a map. I haven't given up on at least one listener in both of those places, if only so it makes the map look more complete. But it also isn't extremely surprising that I've had no listeners on those two cold land masses, since so few people live there. Of course, the same goes for Wolf Point. There are listeners in all 50 U.S. states and all Canadian provinces. This time last year, I was still waiting on a listener in Nunavut, Canada. Whoever you are, I'm glad you're here. Great Britain and Australia are also home to many listeners. No surprise there, as the podcast is in English, and that's what they speak there although not quite the same as my native tongue. Surprisingly, the podcast is usually ranked higher in Great Britain than it is in the U.S. It's been as high as number one in Great Britain and number five in the U.S. Stats I still can't believe. 
When I look at the rankings, I see it's frequently higher than many podcasts I subscribe to and highly enjoy and respect. I consider myself lucky. I have no clue how the rankings are determined, and I rarely look, and I couldn't have been more amazed than I remain. There are a few surprising places, like Iraq, Rwanda, Indonesia, Syria, Malaysia, Cuba, China, Afghanistan, Pakistan, and a surprising number of listeners in Saudi Arabia. So many places where Christianity is by far a minority religion. It really speaks to the power of the internet. I end each episode with requests that you rate the podcast on iTunes. And you should really do this, especially if you can give it four or five stars. I'm not kidding when I say that the reviews help others to find the series. It really does. The quantity, ratings, and frequency of the ratings gain the Apple logarithm and cause it the rise in the search results. And the higher it is in the search results, the more people who find it. It's self-fulfilling. 599 of you have rated for an average of 5 stars. Wow, and thanks. I do get several frequently asked questions, and I usually reply, if I get a chance to reply, to tune into the anniversary episode. So, I guess I need to address those now. First, I've been approached by advertisers, and so far, I've turned them all down. I really like not having to worry about how they would feel about the content. One day, there may be a good fit, but so far, none. And I've been blessed enough professionally that the expense of the podcast is by no means a burden. I also think monetizing it would deflate much of the satisfaction I get from doing it. I don't want to think of it as a job. I'm often asked about my theological leanings. I think I may have addressed this a couple of times, but in case I haven't, the quick summary is that I'm Protestant, having been raised in a household that essentially alternated between Presbyterian and Baptist. But, I try to keep all theological implications out of the episodes and focus just on the history. Having said that, we all have blind spots, and I'd be surprised if my beliefs didn't inform the episodes somewhat. I've been asked once or twice to footnote everything and provide my references. I'm passing on that suggestion. I've written many academic articles where citing is an absolute must, and it slows the process down tremendously and makes it extremely boring. This isn't an academic forum, and I need to make it less dense instead of more. Also, when's the last time you heard something on the radio or watched an educational program that cited all of their sources, or even any of their sources? They don't, because it's a different format. Like I've mentioned in the past anniversary episodes, I've been approached about turning the podcast into a book. And the update is, it's been a couple of different publishers. I consider that a great compliment. My short answer continues to be, not yet. For now, the same reasons apply as to why I've shunned advertisers and I'm not footnoting. Maybe at some point in the future. Though now, with as many words as I've written, the task would either require multiple volumes or intense editing. I've had a couple of friends and acquaintances who've left their professions to pursue their passions, and they've generally been very successful. But then something changes, and their passions become just another profession, and the joy departs. 
So for now, I'm having too much fun and I don't want to change the secret sauce. Not to forget, I'd most likely drive an editor and publisher a bit crazy. I do get letters, really criticism, about why I use this term or that. Why, for example, especially early in the podcast, I refer to the land inhabited by Abraham by many terms, just not Israel. I don't know if I ever made it obvious, but I really tried to avoid using the word Israel prior to the birth of Jacob, who would later be renamed Israel. The reasons should be obvious. Just in case it isn't, you shouldn't call it Israel prior to the birth of Israel. I sometimes use the word Levant, and a very few, but some, took issue with that. And the issue they took tended to center around a modern political, well, really terroristic use of the word. For the record, the Levant is a geographic region that is much bigger than the modern country of Israel, and therefore much larger than ancient Israel. Depending on who you ask, as is generally true with broad terms, it includes all or part of several modern countries including Israel, Jordan, Lebanon, Syria, and Turkey. Some even think it includes parts of Egypt, Libya, Greece, and Iraq. My use is generally confined to the countries I just listed that are also on the eastern shore of the Mediterranean. A word used in a geographic sense only. I'm trying to be accurate, but not terribly pedantic. And finally, the last question I'm frequently asked. Who am I? have yet to disclose the answer. A few people that are extremely close to me know, and that's it. This podcast isn't about me, and it's certainly not about my ego. But do know that I am degreed in the subject of history, from a nationally ranked university on the topic, and I have a doctorate degree. Like I've mentioned before, I've been published academically, and my career has proven very rewarding. And that's enough from and about me. I hope you'll keep listening, and I'll provide an update in another year or so. Comments and questions can be sent to comments at christianhistorypodcast.com. As always, you can find information about the podcast on the internet at christianhistorypodcast.com. This week, help others to find the podcast by leaving a positive review on iTunes. You can find the Facebook page by searching the phrase Christian History Podcast as three separate words. Once there, be sure to like the page so that it's easier to find later. Finally, if you're enjoying the podcast, subscribe so you get the episodes as soon as they are released and you don't miss out. Thanks for listening and have a great week.